Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 289. And tonight, we find with Gandalf, or rather we witness Gandalf finding the doors that are shut, and we get to enjoy yet another Hobbit reference. There have been a whole bunch of these that have been sprinkled in lately. Lots of, um, and I don't just mean like the the rather indirect ones where all of a sudden we're, we're, we're taking very great care over the fate of every single pony compared to the, the you know, equine apocalypse that was the Hobbit, but um, more direct ones. So we, we talked about this recently. Um, comparatively recently, when we were looking at the, when we were remembering the burning pine cones, the wargs of the Hobbit and the burning pine cone sequence um, is something that yeah, clearly we were uh, being, was being recalled to our memories uh, during the fight with the wolves on the hilltop of the uh, the evening before our current events. Um, but um, uh, today we will have yet another such moment. And it's interesting to see these moments. It's interesting to see not just Tolkien making references, right? But what it... One of the... I, 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 indulge me for a minute while I'm going to... This is speculation. Well, not a, it's sort of speculation. Um, but um, I just want to kind of point to a pattern that seems to me to be emerging. And maybe I'm wrong. But the pattern that I see, the, the relationship, of course, between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings is a kind of a tricky and complicated one. On the one hand, it's relatively straightforward in the sense that the, you know, the Hobbit, like the Lord of the Rings was designed to be a sequel uh, to The Hobbit. But given how much The Lord of the Rings had evolved and grown since the beginning of that project, that is, since Tolkien sat down to write a sequel to the uh, uh, to the to the to the Hobbit, um, it, it's hard. It hardly qualifies there anymore, and so it's not. It's certainly not like the second installment of you know like the Hobbit. Um, it's and so therefore, <clears throat> from relatively early on, its relationship with the original book has become more complicated. You remember, of course, the famous letter in which Tolkien described to his publisher uh, that the sequel of The Hobbit was, quote, forgetting children and things like that, right? Um, so, you know, Tolkien was certainly very much aware of this and, and um, you know, was kind of preparing his publisher, who, remember, really quite wanted another children's book and was not really looking for um, what he was, in fact, eventually going to receive. Um, though how he received it was itself really complicated. But in any case, the point is, um, I think that a couple other things that are kind of involved in the complex relation, it's not just that the Lord of the Rings had turned into something different, but in turning into something different, it also has sought in various ways to kind of draw the Hobbit after it, if you see what I mean. Um, it, you may have heard me talk about, I'm sure you probably read things about how Tolkien, like Tolkien's own mm, fraught relationship with The Hobbit, especially in his later years, right? It's too crude and simplistic to say that, you know, Tolkien didn't like The Hobbit or whatever. There are a bunch of things about The Hobbit that in retrospect he didn't like. Um, and, but the, it, it's not about like, like personal preferences or anything like that. What I'm talking about is how Tolkien, Tolkien liked things to be tidy. He liked 
to sort of fit things together, right? And he was aware of it bothered him. The Hobbit was like he never like cast off the Hobbit, right? I mean, he there could have it could, one could imagine a world, right? It would not be a nearly as much of a fun world as ours, but one could imagine a world in which Tolkien, in the course of writing The Lord of the Rings, had decided just to throw off The Hobbit completely, right? And just be like, I'm going to pretend that book doesn't exist. This book has no prequel at all, right? Um, this is uh, this book stands completely on its own. I'm going to, like, write Bilbo out of the story. Whatever, you know, like, one could imagine that. And in some ways, I, I, I can imagine Tolkien being kind of tempted by that because of the ways in which, um, uh, in which, like, there was this disjunction between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, not just in genre, right, which is true, and not just in tone, which is true, and not just in intended audience, which is also true. Like, all of those things are awkward enough, right? But the really hard things are the, um, the sort of, the deeper differences. Um, and this gets to, again, stuff I've talked about and written about to some extent, my Hobbit book and everything, but, um, but it seems to me relatively clear um, and this is, I'm not going to make this whole argument now, because uh, there's no time. Um, this is a actually quite spontaneous little prologue to tonight's class, after all, and not a full, like, lecture or whatever on this subject. But I'm pretty convinced that The Hobbit is not really, at the end of the day, he did not fully situate The Hobbit in the world. Like, it's not... In the end, he didn't try to make it consistent um, with the world of the Silmarillion, like with the world of his other writings. Even the writings, it's inconsistent, even with the writings in the state that they were at the time he was writing The Hobbit. I'm not even talking about inconsistencies with the published Silmarillion that can be explained by the ways in which the Silmarillion story changed after the writing of The Hobbit. It's not, it's not even that. It doesn't even fit with what he had written at the time. He was playing really fast and loose with it. Not because, why? Um, not because he, you know, just like was being sloppy, but because he wasn't trying to do that. He wasn't trying to uh, tell a story that really was within that world because he was, he was writing for a group of people who didn't care, who didn't know about it, his other world, right? Um, and so he didn't have anything to clearly, and like he, he wasn't like locked in to anything. His audience in writing The Hobbit were first his children, who hadn't read The Silmarillion at the time, and uh, and also, of course, then eventually, you know, the, the sort of the public juvenile audience also, who very notably had not read The Silmarillion yet for very good reasons. Um, exactly, Bob. It's not that they didn't care. It's that they couldn't care. That, that, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. Um, anyway, so, so he... Total, he played fast and loose with things. Like the, the word that I've always used to describe this is recycled. Like he recycles things from his legendarium. Um, so he takes elements. When he comes to moments in Bilbo's story, right? When he's writing this fairy tale called The Hobbit, um, he comes to moments in these stories and he recycles stuff from his freely from his legendarium because he loves that stuff, right? So we get all kinds of things, right? We get Elrond himself. We get Gondolin. We get, um, you know, the a sort of um, recycled Doriath, right? With the Elven King living in his behind his magic doors, you know, and everything, um, and and with attention with the dwarves um, there, and we even get a we get even a kind of a discount Silmaril, right? 
Um, why? Because he loves the Silmarils, Tolkien. So um, anyway, so yeah, we we get all this stuff, right? Um, we get all this stuff because he he just sort of he chucked in he chucked it in there because he loves those things. He, he was chucking all kinds of things in the Hobbit. That the Hobbit is the most free. Okay. okay. I was going to say The Hobbit is the most free, loose, and easy thing he ever wrote. Well, that's not true. Farmer Giles of Ham is a little more even free and loose than The Hobbit. But certainly, of all of the things that he wrote that are even adjacent to his Middle-Earth legendarium, to these stories he had been writing for decades already uh, at this point, um, it's freer and looser than any of those things, right? Um, and there's... what What is in that category? you might ask, right? The Lay of Lathian, uh, the alliterative Children of Hurin. Um, that is, he had already begun writing a bunch of sort of separate or separable stories that were taking place, that were part of that legendarium story, right? That were, uh, that were operating within that world. The Hobbit, not one of those, right? Um, anyway, so, the well, The Fall of Gondolin, not really. Well, so, uh, the Fall of Gondolin he had written earlier as part of the Legendarium in the Book of Lost Tales, <clears throat> but he never got around to writing a freestanding... Well, okay, he started it, Johnny, right, with the like the whole horrible, tragic... Uh, horribly tragic, I mean. Tragic because it's wonderful, not because it's horrible. Um, uh, the the rewriting of the Tuor and Gondolin story that he began, and then the, the thing at the beginning of the Book of Lost Tales, that thing at the very beginning of my, at the very top of my list of things I wish that Tolkien had finished. Um, so, he, but that, that was a long, that was well after The Hobbit that he, that he did that one. Anyway, point is, in The Hobbit, he wasn't doing that. He was just like, free and easily, I'm telling it story to my kids, and then for fun, I'm, I'm going to write it out uh, because I think, uh, you know, because I'm enjoying that and I like, you know, writing this kind of fairy tale, and it's really fun to recycle stuff, and not just his stuff, but like Beowulf stuff and other Norse stuff and all kinds of, all kinds of things, right? Um, so, um, so yeah, yeah, Justin, I, I do think that that's kind of an element, right? Um, Justin says, I just felt like Tolkien inserted the Silmarillion references into The Hobbit because he felt the true stories would never be published and this would be the closest he would get. Yeah, in that sense. So like, Justin, it's easy to say, right, in retrospect, right? It's easy to kind of go back and look at the way he kind of recycled the, Silmar the, the Silmaril itself, right? A Silmaril into The Hobbit in the Arkenstone. Um, and be like, dude, what were you thinking? Right? Like, don't, don't go there. Like, save that. Like, come on. This is a Silmaril. For, the Silmarils are really important. Don't mess around with that. Right? But of course, Justin, just as you say, um, uh, uh, just as you say, he, um, uh, he, he, he didn't know it was ever going to see the light of day at that point. Right? So, like, What's to ruin? Right? I mean, like it's it's. I mean, hey, like if he can get even a like a a, a you know a discounted, uh, expurgated kitty version of the Silmaril story out there, then hey, and mind keep in mind, like notice how the Arkenstone ends up like causing wars and people like taking oaths to reclaim them and slaying their allies is like 
it is a discounted kitty version, right, of the Silmaril story. Like, it's more than just the fact that the Arkenstone really looks like a Silmaril and is kind of called Silmaril. Um, I don't, I'm sure you guys have heard me talk about this, right? When he translated the word Silmaril uh, into Old English, which obviously he did because obviously he translated parts of his legendarium in, you know, he composed parts of his legendarium in Old English like you do. Um, the word that he used for Silmaril was Arkenstana, which means holy stone. So um, the Arkenstone is, 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 is clearly, uh, is clearly that. Um, yeah, Jackie, that's the talk I gave, the talk about uh, Tolkien trying to get the Silmarillion published. It's the talk I gave at the Prancing Pony Moot last year, wasn't it? Um, I'm losing track of that one, but yeah, that was, a, that was, that was a really fun talk. That was a really fun talk. Um, anyway, so, but let me not, let me not get sidetracked. Point is, he did all that stuff in The Hobbit, right? And... It was cool. It was fun. Remember also, he did not plan to publish. Like, he didn't sit down when he was doing that stuff, right? When he was just, like, recycling and importing these fun bits from his, his, his Silmarillion world, you know, from his, uh, uh, you know, from his legendarium, he didn't even, he didn't even know he was, he, he didn't planning to publish it, right? Like it, it got sent to a publisher without his knowledge and he was fine. He was happy to get it published and stuff. But again, like if somebody had approached him and said, Professor Tolkien, would you write one of the classic children's books of all time for us? And we'd be happy to publish it. And he had sat himself down to the project of doing that. I cannot imagine he would have done what he did. I just can't. I just, it's, he was too, there is a sense um, I could do, um, I could do a whole talk. Maybe I'll do this talk someday. It would be fun. Um, I could do a whole talk that says sort of poking gentle fun at, uh, Tolkien, uh, in saying that one of the thing, one of the reasons, like the primary reason that he disliked, um, the Chronicles of Narnia was that they reminded him of the Hobbit. But anyway, um, I'm, uh, uh, I, but but I'm not going to give I'm not going to give that talk right now. Anyway, the point is that um, I so I'm going back to what I was saying before about the Hobbit serving uh, like the Hobbit's status as a prequel to the Lord of the Rings, and it bothered him. Um, I, I think it bothered him a lot, um, and he was I believe as he went through the Lord of the Rings, I think that we can see evidence that he is aware even possibly painfully aware that speculation, but um, possibly painfully aware of the uh, sort of inadequacies of The Hobbit, right? As a prequel to The Lord of the Rings, like ways in which it just doesn't, it just doesn't fit, especially since, especially when he comes to the point where he makes the decision I'm not going to just keep doing this recycling, this comical recycling stuff, right? I'm not just going to do a recycled kitty version. I'm going to make the decision. And remember, we, we had that moment together. This is still probably my favorite moment in the history of exploring the Lord of the Rings. Of all 289 sessions that we've done, well, who knows what might still happen tonight, but of um, all 288 sessions we have completed, um, I think still my favorite moment is the moment when 
we discovered, like when we found, um, when you know, we came to the moment and talked about it, when uh, uh, he changes his mind, right? That moment when this becomes, um, uh, when this becomes, when he when he brings the Silmarillion, led, you know, his whole legendarium, and the, when he decides the Lord of the Rings takes place in that world. Yes, exactly. I will tell you the tale of Tenuviel. That's the moment. That's it's so clear in the manuscript. In the you know you read the history of Middle Earth, it is so clear that it is that moment that the that that there's it's like there's there's this enormous click, right? Which you can hear when you read it on the page, and boom! Now everything is different. And since that moment, the Hobbit has been getting more and more. <laughs> awkward, right? Um, and I think it bothers him. I think it bothers him. So think back in this context again to the pine cones and the wargs and Gandalf's scene, right? Um, and the ways in which that moment with the wolves on the hilltop um, just earlier on in this chapter seems to be almost a kind of corrective, right? Um, lest we only hold on to the memories of Gandalf the Grey pitching pine cones down uh, at the wolves um, sort of desperately, right? And then about to fling himself down onto the spears of the goblins and die uh, because there's nothing else he can do. Um that image is first recalled and then replaced with the image of that amazing image of Gandalf that we were looking at, um, you know, several weeks ago. Um, and uh, yes, Josh, exactly similar to how we got a correction about trolls not being dumb anymore. Yeah, we, 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 he doesn't do exactly the same thing with the trolls. Like, we haven't gotten a troll scene which corresponds to the to the tr- we we got that reference, Josh, right? Which you're remembering at the beginning of chapter two, right? Um, but we don't we don't get a a scene which is like a, a directly parallel scene in the way that we got like a parallel to the pinecone scene, right? Um, and uh, um, anyway, so we it's been happening a lot lately, the Karathras incident corresponds to the stone giant the stone giants like playing rugby in the storms right um moment in the hobbit in a similar way the wolves on the hilltop um also uh, uh corresponded in that way tonight this long digression that i've been doing here is in fact designed to be an introduction to the passage we're going to actually discuss tonight um is um uh, is also uh, yet another one of those nods. And since this is the third one of these that we have found, you know, within these last, you know, six months of our discussion, it's been something I've been really noticing a lot during this stretch. And now that we've come to the third one, it, the, the pattern is beginning to come clearer to me, right? Um, one of the things that I think that we can see Tolkien doing is kind of um, um, is kind of reaching out 
reaching back, like gently reaching back into the Hobbit. And, um, well, I don't know. I, I can't think of the best metaphor for it. Um, but he's, he's sort of touching these Hobbit moments, recasting them a little bit, though that's not exactly right either. Um, but he, he reminds us of them, but he, he, he reshapes them. It's like we're, we're introduced, we're invited to see them through a totally different lens, right? Uh, than we, um, than we did before. Um, yeah, maturing them, yes, in some ways, uh, Aspen. Remix, yes. But there's more, it's, it's more like a corrective, right? Um, it is more of a reinterpretation. Uh, a metaphor that I've often used about, like, what Tolkien wanted to do with The Hobbit um, is a metaphor of naturalization, like making the Hobbit a naturalized citizen of Middle-earth, which it wasn't before, right? The Hobbit, as it stands, is like, um, you know, it's not a native citizen of Middle-earth. It's a, it's not a guest either. You know, it's like a resident alien, essentially, uh, of Middle-earth. And, um, uh, but he, he wanted to naturalize it more. He wanted to harmonize it more. But at the same time, he doesn't just go back and rewrite it yet. He'll do that, right? In the end, he'll crack. And in 1960, he'll go back and start rewriting rewriting The Hobbit completely, right? Um, to try to harmonize it much more thoroughly and much more fully um, with the content and the tone. Um, and even things like the geography uh, of uh, The Lord of the Rings. Um, but... Um, yeah, but of course uh, that was uh, not successful, uh, and he mercifully abandoned uh, that project. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just wanted to point out that trend because I think it's an interesting and an important one. It's not that it necessarily helps us to understand what's happening in the passages that we're reading here, but I think it's, it's a, it's, it's, it is an interesting, it provides an interesting glimpse, though as all such glimpses, based largely on uh, much speculation, and we can't really be sure ever of what was inside Tolkien's head and what he was thinking at any given time, um, but it does give, it suggests um, some of his thinking and some of his creative thinking and what this story was doing and how he was thinking about this story and in turn how that made him think um, about The Hobbit in retrospect. Okay, so um, I didn't... Uh, I didn't intend to say any of that tonight. <laughs> I was just like, let me open by saying a few words, and that was way more words than I meant to say. Um, but I think you will immediately see um, uh, where we're headed with that. Um, okay. When this was done, they turned to watch Gandalf. He appeared to have done nothing. He was standing between the two trees, gazing at the blank wall of the cliff, 
as if he would bore a hole into it with his eyes. Gimli was wandering about, tapping the stone here and there with his axe. Legolas was pressed against the rock as if listening. "'Well, here we are, and already,' said Merry. "'But where are the doors? I can't see any sign of them.' "'Dwarf doors are not made to be seen when shut,' said Gimli. "'They are invisible, and their own makers cannot find them or open them if their secret is forgotten.' It's like Gimli's second longest speech. But this door was not made to be a secret known only to dwarves, said Gandalf, coming suddenly to life and turning round. Unless things are altogether changed, eyes that know what to look for may discover the signs. He walked forward to the wall. Right between the shadow of the trees there was a smooth space, and over this he passed his hands to and fro, muttering words under his breath. Then he stepped back. Um... Okay, um, Kendall, that is very interesting. Your copy says masters, not makers. Um, if they're, um, where was it? Uh, their own makers cannot find their open. Okay, hang on. What edition is that? Uh, let me tell you the important point. Is it? at or after the 50th anniversary. The 50th anniversary edition of The Lord of the Rings, um, edited by Hammond and Skull, introduced several changes to the text, some of which um, I think are improvements. They were, you know, correcting errors that had entered into the publication process long before. There are a couple of occasions on which they have introduced um, things that I think are not so justifiable. Um, in general, I'm not a big fan of the 50th anniversary edition. Um, uh, okay. So wait, Fourth Dauntless, the uh, single volume work from 2001, is that... Which one do you have? Masters? Okay. Okay. Um... So, makers. Let me see. Let me let me check my own pre fiftieth edition version that I have here. I was copying this from the iBooks version, which is almost certainly post fiftieth. Um, so let me see here. Where are we? Journey in the dark. Let's see. Masters. So Makers is almost certainly a change. Um, is almost certainly a change that was introduced in the 50th. That would be my guess. Uh, there are very few changes that have been made to the text, you know, in the last 20 years, um, other than the 50th anniversary edition. Um, so, yeah, always fun to... Um, Always feel free to point those out. Those are fun to, those are fun to see. Um, I uh, ran into an issue in writing in my chapters on the prologue. Uh, I ran into an issue with the fifty where they changed uh, the index in a way that I find ah problematic, significantly problematic. Yeah. Okay. So Masters is definitely the older reading. Makers is the newer reading. Um, I don't know 
offhand the justification for that. Um, like what the why that change was made. I don't I don't know the the textual rationale for that. I do know that Hammond and Skull are not like wild and crazy, <laughs> right? Like, I, they have reasons for all the things that they do. I don't always agree with all of their reasons, but they have reasons for all that they do. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there we go. Thank you, Bob. See, I said they always have an explanation. So their explanation is that it was meant to be makers and it was the error so that that Tolkien wrote makers and that the error was made in the first typescript of the chapter and perpetuated in print. Okay. Okay. Um, I can believe it. I can believe it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for looking that up, Bob. I appreciate that. Um, as I say, they're always, they're always very careful about this and there's something, um, there's, uh, um, there are a lot of errors like that that happen. I mean, and, and in in that case, if it's a typescript error, it's it's very possibly an error introduced by Tolkien himself, right, during the process of typing up his own manuscript. Um, but um, if that's the case, I would say that it is a more interesting error. Um, of all possible typos, it's more interesting. Like, that is to say, errors that are errors in print because the printers messed it up, right? Tolkien wrote one thing and the printers put something else by mistake and Tolkien didn't catch it or something like that. If, if that's the source of the problem, that's not very interesting, right? Um, but, um, uh, but if... Um, it's Tolkien's own typo, then it means that he um, he would have had the opportunity to see it. Like, presumably he would have read it in the galley proofs and stuff like that. So at the very least, um, again, this is not something that got sneaked in in the last minute and appeared in the, uh, you know, in the in the published edition and he read the published edition and was like, no, it's supposed to be makers, you fools. Right. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it is, and it's very possible to miss things in proofreading. My point is this is not an error. If assuming, I mean, I, under the circumstances, it sounds like an error. If, uh, if, um, the manuscript said makers and the type the typescript said masters um but here's the thing um and this is where i don't um i don't necessarily i don't necessarily always agree with Hammond and Skull's interpretation um, was it a mistake or a change? Right? Um, right. Yeah. And so, Bob, and here's, here's the other point. So, Bob is pointing out that um, uh, Christopher's comment 
on this on the masters makers controversy here. He says makers is certain. That is to say, there in that moment. Um, Bob, I believe if, if I'm, you could tell me if I'm misremembering it, but what Christopher is saying there is that he's the word in the manuscript is certainly makers. Like there's no question that he wrote makers in the manuscript. Um, uh, he says makers is certain, but could be misread and seems altogether more appropriate and likely than masters says Christopher, right? Altogether more appropriate and likely. And you know, I can get behind that. I get behind that. Makers. Makers seems right, right? It makes sense. Sure. Do I think it's inevitable? Right? But this is why, I, again, like the the changing of the text, um, uh, I... They were bolder about several things. Hammond and Skull, I mean, than I would have been. Um, they just might be more courageous than I am in general, um, which is very possible. Um, but, um, but again, even with Christopher, um, I, um, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. That's an interpretive question, right? The question of is the word makers or the word masters more, um, what was his exact phrase there again, Bob, um, more appropriate and likely? Right? Is, is is it really? Right? I mean, you know, okay. Like, I'm I'm kind of... I, I, I could be convinced of that, but I don't find that necessary and obvious. Right? And what seems to me very likely... Now, of course, it's very possible that Tolkien just overlooked it. Right? Never really noticed that, you know, he wrote Makers and never really noticed that he had changed it in the TypeScript accidentally to Masters. Um, but I also think what evidence there is. <laughs> I, I, again, I'm not arguing with the manuscript evidence, but what, argue, what, what evidence exists suggests that in the end, Tolkien was fine with masters, right? Um, that he, maybe he did just misread it, but maybe he misread it for a reason. <laughs> like maybe when he was making the, because he made the TypeScript, right? He's, the error came, came in with him, Right? if error it be, and not improvement, right? Um, uh, the fact that he had written Makers originally doesn't necessarily convince me that he didn't think Masters was better when he wrote it, even if Christopher doesn't agree with him, even if Hammond and Skull don't agree with him, right? Um, but the fact that he, A, typed the word Masters, possibly by mistake, but at the very least, didn't, it didn't sound inappropriate uh, to him, uh, enough for him to change it back or to change it to, any, to something else or to go back and look twice at it and make sure he'd copied it correctly. Um, and nor at any other point in the publication process, you know, either. So either when he initially typed it or when he reread it and I think retyped it or when he reread other typescripts of it and then reread the galley proofs, the word master never seemed to strike him as being inappropriate there. Um, and, um, uh, so anyway, um, <laughs> JJ, <laughs> JJ is teasing me because of course he remembers how throughout my discussion of the history of Middle Earth, uh, in, um, 
in in uh, Mythgard Academy. I'm whenever I, I when I do occasionally disagree with Christopher Tolkien, I'm always like uh, really like sheepish and beating myself up about it first <laughs> for a long time before I do. Um, uh, so yeah, he's, um, he's 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 teasing me about that. Um, and I'm not even I'm not even saying he's wrong. I'm just saying um, uh, that uh, his uh, it, it's just like his opinion, man. Um, <laughs> so that's all. Um, but uh, <laughs> so um, because again, the the argument that he's making simply is that he th- of the two variant readings, both of which are from his father. He, Christopher, thinks that Makers makes more sense than Masters, right? Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, anyhow. Um, <laughs> okay. This is a whole, another whole conversation I wasn't meaning to have. Um, I can put it no plainer than this. <laughs> of the two, I think Masters works better. I think Masters works better for my money. Um, and I'll tell you why. Who are the makers of the gates? Dwarf doors are not made to be seen when shut. They are invisible and their own makers cannot find them or open them if their secret is forgotten. Gimli's thinking of Narvi here, right? Like the dwarves who make them. But isn't it, at the very least, isn't it rather charming isn't it rather charming to say that um, there are a couple ways to think about how the word master functions in this instance, right? Number one, Penloth, exactly as you were saying, um, masters is more specific. It's not the guy with the chisel, right? Or I was even actually it's, it's a little bit less specific, right? The maker is the one with the chisel, right? But uh, these doors are not called the doors of Narvi. Narvi made them, right? Um, you know, he gets, uh, he gets, the, I love the, I love the final inscription on the door, which reads like a, like a, like a photography credit, right? You know, you've got like the headline and then the, fo- the, the photograph and then like the photographic credit at the bottom, right? Um, who's the master of the doors of Moria? Durin's the master of the doors of Moria, right? They're called the doors of they're called the doors of Durin, right? They're not called the doors of Narvi, though Narvi did make them, right? Um, so, uh, so I do think that it, um, but so that I mean that's 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 one way in which masters actually makes sense to say like basically for Gimli, Gimli saying look these doors wouldn't open for Durin himself if 
their secret if if Durin didn't remember the secret for how to how, how to open them, right? And that makes a whole lot of sense to me that Gimli would say like would would emphasize the point in that way. Um and but there's another way to think about it. If we think about um their masters if so I could imagine somebody saying, "Well, but Gimli, as a dwarf here, may be thinking not of, you know, not like politically, right? Not about being, but saying like the point is he's talking about the mechanism of the doors, right? And the mechanism of the doors obviously are going to respond to the one who made the doors, right? Like the one who designed the mechanism is going to know how to open the doors, right? Obviously, right? Um, And so in order to make the extreme case that he's trying to make, right? He's trying to emphasize how, um, you know, how like hard it is to open dwarf doors. Uh, if the dude who made the gates would not be able to open it if their secret were forgotten, even he wouldn't be able to, like Narvi himself wouldn't be able to open them. And that's a, a similar kind of statement of the same thing. And so again, that would be a defense for, for the maker's claim, right? But um, I would say even in that context, right? Even in the context of <laughs> Admiral Kiriator, uh, you are certainly correct that a lot of this, um, it's easy to think of uh, password resets and stuff in these, uh, uh, in these, in these days. Um, uh, yeah. So anyhow, um, but here's my other defense of the word masters here. Um, isn't it kind of nice if instead of merely characterizing the doors as a you know inanimate thing you know just an inanimate mechanism that was made uh, by their makers but almost as if they are sentient creatures who respond to their masters, right? As if the relationship between Narvi and these gates was less like, you know, the relationship between a painter and one of his paintings than it was between a master and his dog or something like that, right? Like like these doors were... And again, think about how dwarves themselves began, Right, with Aule making the dwarves, right, uh, and uh, them eventually getting free will and stuff. Um, but um, yeah, exactly, Zephan, exactly. The stone is the servant to the dwarves. Um, it does seem to be in keeping with the way that they think about stone and with the way that these doors. Um, you have to. If you say the right thing, the doors will open, right? Like, that's how these doors work. You just have to talk to them, right? I mean, again, we can we can make jokes about entering passwords, um, but um, entering a password, the, the concept of passwords is an old one, but it required another person back in the day, right? And that's what like what we have here. Um, who's listening? Who's listening to s- waiting for somebody to say the word melon? 
so that the gates can open, right? Um, uh, yeah, so I, uh, I like, I like the concept of masters. The, the idea that in Gimli's mind, that Gimli, at the very least, Gimli's assumption about the doors um, are that the doors will only respond. It's not that they'll only respond to their masters, but they will only respond in the way that their masters have trained them to do. Right? Um, but they will respond. But you've got to, you've got to, you got to talk to him right. Right? Um, and yes, trifle, it does seem to fit with um, our speculation recently that there needs to be friendship in the party attempting to open the door. Um, right, otherwise Sauron might have been able to get in. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes, yes, that, um, I mean, can the door detect that it's, right, so Trifle, if I'm, I'm following up w with what you're saying there, you can tell me if I'm, if I'm saying too much or if I'm, I'm, I'm putting too much uh, uh, in your mouth there, but uh, basically that, that, that the door has some kind of judgment of its, or it is as if at least it has some kind of judgment, right? It's not just going to open up to any old fool who comes up to the door or any old, you know, would-be global dictator who comes up to the door and just says the word melon, right? Um, like you've got to actually be a friend. Like you got to convince the door that you're a friend um, before it will open. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I I think that that's right. More like two-factor authentication, exactly. But no, it's more like having a sentient gate guard who can make their own judgments. Like Hama is going to make his own judgments about who does and does not come into Metaceld with or without their weapons, right? Um, if the doors of Durin are rather like that, um, or even if there is some sort of quasi-metaphorical sense in which they're like that, or even if Gimli himself t would, would tend to think about them in that way, right? And not as a merely mechanical device. Um, uh, then... Then yeah, <laughs> Bill. Yes, just like the Watchers in Mordor, but not evil. Yeah, you're right. That's another example, right? Yes, the Watchers that Sam forces his way past um, at the Tower of Kirithungol, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, yes. Interesting. Yeah, Matt is correct. Matt says an interesting thought. Uh, the elves who helped to make these doors are the ones who made the rings of power. Rings that somehow are and are not sentient in a way that makes people nervous. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, um, this seems very possible. Um, very possible. Um, so, in fine, for all of these reasons, I find the word masters perfectly appropriate. Uh, in fact, back me up against the wall and make me choose one, I'm going to choose masters over makers, just because I think that it gives us more, right? It gives us more, and it seems to um, kind of fit into... Um, uh, to fit into 
this the kind of world that Tolkien is building here. And again, I think that the evidence suggests that at the very least, even if it entered as a mistake, right? We can't prove, but neither can Hammond and Skull prove the opposite, that when Tolkien was typing, he didn't say, oh, you know what's better than makers? Masters. Yeah. I'll type masters instead. And both Christopher and Hammond and Skull are agreeing that that was a mistake, right? And Tolkien would be like, dude, I upgraded that word. What what, what do you want about? Um, uh, but, um, uh, yeah, so, um, so it's possible that it was an editorial change on Tolkien's part from day one. That seems to be, that seems to fit the data that we have. But even if that's not the case, um, the evidence clearly suggests that at the very least, Tolkien was fine with it, approved it from then on, all the way down the line. Even even if it did come in as a mistake, even if he actually just misread Makers and accidentally wrote Masters the first time, he never corrected it, and he never objected to it, and he never disliked it at any point down the line. Um, so that's why I'd keep it. That's why I'd keep it. Um, yeah. Okay. My goodness. What an odd discussion we're having tonight. How about we start talking about the slides? <laughs> I mean, we are. We are. Um, but gosh, I did not plan to have that discussion either tonight. I had, I had, uh, I had not remembered the Masters Makers controversy. Okay. Um, <laughs> Dr. Benway says, three out of my four copies have Makers. Well, that must mean they're relatively new, I think. Um, uh, but, um, <laughs> okay. All right. Um, since we're all over the place anyway, let's, um, uh, let's, <laughs> let's go backwards. Um, this scene that we're looking at was set up, um, not, not all the way back to Weathertop Trifle, not quite so far as that. Um, was it, let me not just look, it's going to take me too long to find it this way. Somebody remind me. Where uh, just just recently, earlier in this chapter, somebody talked about if Gandalf can. Somebody just recently said if Gandalf can find the doors that are shut, right? Uh, who was it who said that? Who characterized this moment? Like that was the anticipation of this moment. If Gandalf can find the doors that are shut, because um, the finding of the doors that are shut seemed already to be happened to have happened, right? Right before we turned, like we 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 paused for the for the pony drama, right? But we we seemed to be pausing after the doors had been found, right? I mean, there's the um, uh, uh, there's it was Aragorn who said it. Okay, see, I wasn't remembering exactly who said it. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. Um, As I say, okay. Um, here's here's why I'm thinking about this. This is a somewhat. This moment is a somewhat unexpected moment. On the one hand, 
it seems like the doors had been found. What did we see? The description. In the landscape description, we saw this, right? There are two enormous holly trees standing like sentinels against the wall. There's a perfectly flat place in the wall between them, right? What's more, it is clear from the evidence that we can see in the horrible lake that there used to be a, a road that came right up to this spot that was lined with holly trees the whole way. Right? So, finding the door, not hard. Right? I mean, it's this is not a concealed door. Exactly, Penla. Like, how could they not find it? It's obviously, it's right there. Right? So, this moment... When they finish unpacking Bill and they turn to watch Gandalf and this is a surprise, right? He appeared to have done nothing. He was standing between the two trees gazing at the blank wall of the cliff as if he would bore a hole into it with his eyes. What is happening? Like, what What do you mean you can't find the door? It's right there, right? So... The narrative at this moment introduces this new element, right? Like, we thought the doors had been found. Like, it seems obvious to all of us where the doors are, right? And again, it's not like they're like, well, maybe it's actually, you know, 50 yards in this direction or something like that. Like, it's not, um, that's not the, that's not what's happening here. Um, Gandalf and Legolas and Gimli aren't like roving up and down the wall trying to guess what spot the doors might be. They know the doors are here, but that doesn't help. There's a blank wall in the cliff. He's sitting on the doorstep and thinking, yes, JJ, he is. Excellent. Yes. Um, Little Room Johnny wants to know if original readers would be anticipating the last light of Durin's day. Yeah. Yeah. Here's our next Hobbit um, connection, isn't it? Um, The secret door. The dwarf door. Um, exactly. Yeah. Vardendil says that, uh, says I did it first reading. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, now this, I don't think is necessarily a moment that Tolkien is trying to redo, right? Like in some ways, I think Karathras is trying to redo the stone giants, or how the fight with the wolves on the hilltop is kind of trying to redo um, the wolf glade in The Hobbit, to some extent. Um, but um, uh, but it is, a, it is a, a familiar situation, right? Um, if only Bill were a thrush rather than a pony. Um, well, I don't know. Uh, Bill is at least as communicative uh, to um, uh, to Sam as uh, the thrush was to anybody but Bard, I guess. Um, Everett says, can't Legolas talk to the rocks? No, look. What's he doing? Right? He doesn't need to talk to the rocks. He's got to listen to them. Exactly. That's just what he's doing. That's just what he's doing. Um, Legolas was pressed against the rock as if listening. Um, 
Exactly as Fort Thoughtless says. Everyone can talk to rocks. It's getting them to answer that's tricky, right? Um, yeah, I, 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 I have to think Legolas is... I didn't notice this for a long, long, long time. Um, I always thought that Legolas was like listening for echoes to try to detect where the passage is. But I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he's... Right, so Gwesky, he's not talking to a wall. He's listening to a wall, right? Um, uh, he's listening to rock music, Kendall. That's also probably very true. Um, I wonder if Gimli tapping at the stone would drown out the sound of the rock's voices or wake it up. I'm not really sure. Um, but... Um, Again, I don't think any of the three of them are in any doubt as to where, in general, the doors are. Now, you could say they don't know... Ex- I mean, okay, given that it's somewhere between those two holly trees, right? <laughs> Circumstantial evidence is fairly strong, right? I mean, it would have been a strange sort of joke for the elves and dwarves to build this road and this... Uh, holly-lined avenue that leads right up to the cliff, but it's just a blank wall, and the actual door is like, you know, uh, you know, ten feet to the right. Like, that would be a little bit funny, but uh, that would be, would have been a joke that probably would have gotten old back in the day. Um, uh, yeah, I, um, so, is, is it possible that Gimli is trying to locate exactly where it's it's, his tapping may well be listening, like trying to find exactly where the opening is, how wide the opening is, right? To identify which parts of this wall are wall and which parts of this wall are door. Um, It's possible that that's, that is a thing that he is trying to ascertain here. Um, what we see is Gimli interacting with the stone, kind of probing it in different ways. Um, you know, he's not going to, like, start hammering at it or something like that. He knows that's not going to help. Um, besides which, could you imagine that? Remember, remember the day that Gimli is having, right? Could you even imagine how Gimli would look at you if when you're standing there on the threshold of Khazad Doom for this first time in his life, somebody were to turn to Gimli and say, so, do you have like a pickaxe or something? Can we like bash our way in through here? Do you imagine the look on his face? Um, I mean, it would be like, um, I don't know what, visiting the Taj Mahal and you know, you've come after closing and and say, does anybody have a battering ram or something like that? I mean, um, it would be like cutting down a stand of young trees and leaving them to rot. Yeah, something like that. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, That's, yeah, exactly, Jackie. This is is Gimli's pilgrimage. Um, He is interacting with the door. He's probing it. He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to... um, He's trying to learn something, right, uh, about where the doors are and 
you know, who knows exactly the kinds of things he's... I don't think it's just, is this hollow or not that he's doing. I think there are other things that he is likely uh, to be probing. But he is sure not going to just start trying to break through the doors, even if he thought that that would be useful, which clearly he would not. Um, Legolas is listening. Obviously. As if listening, right? Um, and again, I think not just listening for hollow places. That wouldn't even accomplish anything. They know the doors are here. They know where the doors are. The point is, again, these doors, Aragorn called these doors the doors that are shut. And that suggests to me that they're kind of famously shut. Aragorn clearly does not know how to open them. Um, people don't go into Moria anymore. Like, that's... Aragorn and Gandalf both say that they've gone in, but that's very unusual in both cases, right? So it's not like Moria is a popular, you know, tourist spot these days, even for dwarves, as Gimli would tell you. Um, but, um... But they don't come in from this way. Aragorn thinks of these doors as the doors that are shut. Um, Josh, I don't know that Aragorn made it through Moria last. I don't know that he was trying to make it through. He says he entered and that the memory of entering was very evil. Um, but I don't think that necessarily says that he came out. Gandalf did say that he does. Um, Gandalf did say that he uh, he is um, uh, that he came all the way through from one end to the other. Um, <laughs> Fourth Dauntless says um, every time I hear the doors that are shut I hear the way is shut. Is that on purpose? The way is shut. Of course that's the thing that the um, that's the Paths of the Dead, right? It's the um, the ancient dude um, speaking to uh, you know Balder, right? Who uh, who says that? Um, yes, good, good. Um, Trifle is remembering in Appendix B the entry that says, "Eregion laid waste, death of Celebrimbor, the gates of Moria are shut." There's more to that entry, but it seems like these doors being shut is an event you can date. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, Everett, yes, it absolutely means that Gandalf traveled westward and didn't need to know the password to exit. Yeah. Yeah. Come through. As he's going to explain, remembering ahead, he's going he's gonna to explain this uh, in just a moment. But... Um, these doors have been shut. And Trifle, um, this really seems to boost... Uh, Trifle was the one who brought up the question of how is it that if these doors automatically open to anybody who says the word melon, which means, in other words, anybody who reads aloud the inscription, right? Um, so all you've got to do is be literate, uh, and not translating for the benefit of your friends, and um, presumably 
the doors will open, right? Um, but if so, then Sauron and his invading army would certainly have been able to enter from this side, and it seems like they were not able to do that. So if these doors have been shut, um, if the, sh- the, the shutness of these, it's a big deal, right? These gates have not opened in a long, long time. Nobody knows how to open these gates. And therefore, as Gimli explains, no one knows where they are. Now, what, so Gimli is responding to Mary. Mary's wondering what's going on here. So first of all, let's remember, Gandalf has, uh, he, he, he uh, brought his subcommittee together, right? The gate entry subcommittee, which is him and Gimli and Legolas. So they're, um, they're investigating the door, trying to figure out how to open it, right? Um, and, um, and this is, and we see them at it, right? This is the subcommittee at work. Gandalf staring, Gimli tapping, Legolas listening. Uh, three very different mechanisms for attempting to get through the doors. Mary's question is um, rather, um, he sort of says aloud this simple thing, right? Well, here we are, and already, but where are the doors? I can't see any sign of them. I, th- I thought we'd made it, right? You just said, get ready to go, and here we are. We're all ready now. But um, not only are the doors not open, the doors are, like, not even around, right? <laughs> yeah, I was promised doors. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Gimli is answering the question, where are the doors? Gimli's answer, dwarf doors are not made to be seen when shut. So how, what does Gimli say in response to where are the doors? Right there. There are the doors. See them? No? That's because they're invisible. That proves that they're there. <laughs> right? Doors are not made to be seen when shut. You don't see them? There you go. That proves that they're there. They are invisible. And their own makers cannot find them or open them if their secret is forgotten. Just like the secret door into Erebor, right? Um, and yes, uh, yes, Dizzy, that's great. Someone else was talking about that too. Using, uh, uh, how they're using different senses, right? They're using uh, hearing and touch and sight, all of them, right? Yes. Um <laughs> doors are only present when undetectable. Exactly. It's like Schrodinger's entry to uh, uh, <laughs> to, to Moria. Um, now, so pausing for a second, because it's what we do tonight. Um, let's talk about the thrush. How does this scene connect to, you know, we're, the invisible... Gimli's response should make... Any careful hobbit reader remember the entrance into the Lonely Mountain and should be making people look around for a thrush, right? Or looking up at, you know, to wonder if it's Durin's day or something like that, right? Um, 
And uh, yes, Kendall, I agree. I think JJ was saying a similar thing earlier. Um, when Gandalf suggests knocking on them with Pippin's head, right? Uh, that That isn't in this passage, but comes a little bit later. Um, I do think that's a thrush joke, actually. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think that that's a thrush joke. Exactly. Are there any snails around Dr. Benway? Now, so, but let's talk about that a little bit. How has he... How has this scene changed? Once again, our company is sitting on the door on the doorstep attempting to get into a magic dwarf-made door, which is invisible when shut. Um, and... Uh, what's the difference? What's the difference between the thrush situation, the thrush slash Durin's Day situation, and this one? No map, Maureen. You're right. Um, but notice what there is, Maureen. Just peeking ahead. Moon letters. The moon letters speak the prophecy, right? Stand by the gray stone when the thrush knocks and the last light of Durin's day shall shine upon the keyhole is what the moon letters on the map say. And the moon letters show up on this door in order to tell you how to get in, right? The parallel is really close. No map, right? No map, but we do, in fact, get the explanation of how to enter these doors in moon letters, right? Um, now, for Thoughtless, yes, there's some big differences in the moon letters, and we'll talk about that next time. Um, I'm just peeking ahead at the moon letters, right? Wanted to just acknowledge that other parallel there. Um, Two Juice Man, I, the, I like, I love that way of encapsulating it. Um, the door to the door to Erebor needed a key, which the company had. They also arrived on a specific day. However, there's no key and no magic day, just Gandalf's methodical thinking. Yes. Um, if I had to say, if I had to encapsulate in one word the difference between the Erebor situation... Well, I'm not going to say the Erebor situation, because that's not really fair to the Hobbit, as it's not Erebor. I mean, it's never really called Erebor. It's, it's the Lonely Mountain, right? That's not a... If you, if you think of it as Erebor, you're not thinking in Hobbit language, right? Um, in the language of the book, The Hobbit, I mean. Um, the difference between the Hobbit, mount, the Hobbit dwarf door and this one, in one word, it's destiny. It's destiny. There's a prophecy. A prophecy that is revealed in a secret in secret writing, secret invisible writing on a unique and personal map, which requires a unique key, which will only work on a particular day of the year. But the secret invisible writing on the personal map contains a prophecy of when the conditions will be uniquely correct for the door to be entered. Right? That's how the magic dwarf doors open in The Hobbit. And the, all of this, like the, the whole um, prophecy destiny element of The Hobbit story um, 
is part of a, a it's a significant part of the overall weave of the entire story um the continual references to chance and to destiny uh that come in that story this is this is different right um well, pen law that's far-fetched, but it's far-fetched in the way that all unique events are far-fetched, right? They're all almost infinitely unlikely to have ever happened. They only happen once, right? Um, it's part of the whole framework of The Hobbit. Um, and it's part of the delightful effect of The Hobbit that Bilbo doesn't even really think of it. And we, following Bilbo and Bilbo, and, you know, the, the sort of the narrator's focus on Bilbo's perspective, um, we can overlook it until we really sit back. That was one of the things that was most fun for me in writing my Hobbit book was um, thinking through that stuff and really kind of looking at um, uh, how all of that stuff emerges. Um, but um, anyway, that's what the Hobbit story was doing. That's what that moment was about. This moment is closely parallel to that, but it doesn't have any of those elements, right? It doesn't matter what day it is. There's no unique map, right? There are hidden letters, but those hidden letters are open for anybody to see. They're just on the door itself, right? They're, they're, they're in the public domain, as it were, rather than concealed on a, on a unique map, right? And there's no key. And there's no key. Anybody can open them. That's the point. The key is of a totally different kind, right? Um, and yet the, the similarities still make us kind of think of that as well, right? Um, it's, the situation is very different, but how do I want to say it retains some elements of it or, or like some of the atmosphere of the door in the Hobbit kind of rubs off onto this because it's not simply the opposite, right? This is not just, um, this door where the other door would only ever open at a particular time. And, um, you know, in that moment, which is prophesied, right. And which is so protected. Um, this is not the absolute opposite of that. This is not like a an open revolving door. This is not like a door whose magic, you know, automatically opens like a department store entryway, right? When anybody walks up to it, um, there's more to it than that. It is restrictive. It is this moment when we're staring at a blank at a blank wall, knowing that there are doors there, but not only not knowing how to open the doors, not even knowing for sure where the doors are, right? Being, um, being shut out, not just from what is within the doors, but in a sense, shut out from the doors themselves, right? The doors haven't even disclosed themselves to Gandalf and his subcommittee yet, right? Um, and so therefore, especially when we're remembering back to The Hobbit, it does begin to feel special, especially when we think about it and realize they're going to be the first people to enter this door since when? A long time? Like, from this side. 
right, to approach this door and enter. When was the last time anybody did that? What was the date on that entry? <laughs> Trifle in Appendix B? Mid-Second Age? Something like that, right? Possibly. Possibly. Um, I would be a little bit surprised if that were actually true. Like, if nobody... Um, if nobody ever, in, like, the latter half of the, you know, the second, the second Age, knew, like, the password and was able to enter, like, I bet they were. Um... I mean, goodness, this is all still way pre-Balrog, right? So presumably the dwarves themselves were still coming and going uh, for a long time there. Um, but uh, no, Balin and company, they opened it from the other side, but they came from the other direction. They would never come in this way. They tried to go out this way. Um, yeah. So I assume when it says that they were shut in Second Age 1697, the, the gates of Moria are shut sounds to me like shut to everybody else. That's significant here, right? With the death of Celebrimbor and the fall of Eregion, these doors were open to Eregion and to their allies, the elves. When Celebrimbor dies, right, and Eregion is no more, these doors are shut. The dwarves can still come and go, presumably. Though they'll also presumably have far less cause to come out this way in the post not only while the war is happening, obviously, but even the sen- even in the centuries after Sauron's army is ultimately de- defeated, um, they probably still are not coming out this way nearly so much as they did before, right? Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so I, I think it's it, it would be an exaggeration to say... Uh, it would, on the one hand, be an exaggeration to say that they literally have not ever opened since, you know, what, the 17th century of the Second Age. Um, but there is a sense in which I think that that's true. A larger, not a literal sense, but a larger sense. Yeah, the door ceased formal operation. Um, uh, these were the doors of friendship, and their friends were dead. And they weren't opening their doors to anybody else. With the destruction, with the massacre of their friends, they're done. The doors of friendship are closed. Um, Not only is that friendship at a tragic end, right? But, um, But the implication is they're not looking for new friends now, right? That this was, um, you know, a step towards the more complete isolation of the dwarves hereafter. Um, uh, Yeah. Now, I agree, Trifle, it is certainly possible that nobody's come into here since the fall of Moria in 1981 of the Third Age. Um, That that is, I agree that that's very possible. Um, that this company, Gandalf and his subcommittee, might be the first people to open these doors um, uh, since, you know, for, we're, so we're talking about over a thousand years um, since these doors have been opened. That seems to me very possible. Um, very possible, even likely, honestly. Um, 
But, um, so back to the Lonely Mountain and the parallel there. This is a moment. I find this interesting because interesting in the context of those Hobbit connections we were talking about. On the one hand, the the other, the Karathras moment and the fire and wolves on the mountain, the hilltop moment, were both moments in which the Lord of the Rings narrative, Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings narrative, seemed to be this is over dramatic, but trying to sort of reach back to the Hobbit and uh, I don't know what, give it a, a sort of a Lord of the Rings coloring or shading, right? Um, it's not exactly correction, but um, uh, but to kind of retroactively touch those moments in the Hobbit with these new moments in the Lord of the Rings. Um, this is not one that feels like that exactly. Like I, I don't think that there's anything sort of corrective in this as there as as, as it may be seen. I, I that would be one way I think. To, I, I I'm not comfortable with that. That seems too simplistic. That seems too harsh. Um, but it kind of points in the direction that I'm wanting to do, um, which is that like the Karathras and the wolves seems to be um, in that sort of like a. Um, changing the past, recasting it a little bit. Here, um, this does not feel like that. I don't feel like he's correcting what happened at Erebor. It's a different circumstance. Instead, I feel like the Erebor moment reaches forward and kind of touches this, lends it a kind of mystery. That it... it um, was it Gildalowen, was it you who talked about these thing, these two scenes kind of rhyming in some way, uh, in a sense? And that's, that seems to me, that seems to me right. Um, the moment when the moment of destiny came in The Hobbit, when the thrush knocked and the last light of Durin's day struck upon the keyhole and Thorin put the key, you know, Thorin the king under the mountain, returning at last, um, as foretold of old, put the key into the lock and turned it. That was a, a magic moment, right? There is a sense in which that's the moment when the king returned, right? The king is that, I mean, still a lot of business left to happen at that point, but, but I mean, Thorin, the king, literally unlocked um, the door to his ancient home there, right? Um, he still had to go through it, and there was, you know, there was still, there was still dragon business uh, to take care of. Um, but that was a big moment, right? And that was a big moment, and, it, and the kind of moment that it was was a moment of renewal, right? Um, uh, a moment of renewal. And um, yeah, there's still Balrog business here, Kendall. It's very true. Um, but I do see a parallel. Like, I do feel that the parallel um, is suggestive here. But what it is, this is not the king coming home again. 
This is not a Return of the King story. The Hobbit's a Return of the King story. This is not a Return of the King story, right? Gimli, for all that he's having a very emotional day, right, is not the destined king returning to, to Moria, right? Remember what this gate was about. Remember what, the door, what this door opening means. This is the door of friendship. This is, this is the unlocking of... I, you know, I trifle. I, you're, I'm, 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 I keep in my mind coming back to that, um, that entry, that second age entry in the, uh, in the, in the Tale of Years, in Appendix B, um, when the gates of Moria were shut, and now. The gates of Moria are going to open, again, the way, between. The door, which was the symbol, of. Friendship between the elves and the dwarves, but more than that, right? Of collaboration. Think of, of, of pre, there's something almost, um, to get all technical and theological, there's something almost prelapsarian about this, uh, meaning before the fall, like before the sin of Adam and Eve. This idea, you know, the, the kind of the, the mythic idea that there was this, which is, which is so similar to, um, other myths of golden, the golden age and stuff, right? That there was this day and, you know, the, there was this time in which everything was perfect and everybody was happy and everything was wonderful, but then horrible things happened, right? Of one kind or another and in different myths, it's different. you got the sin of Adam and Eve. Um, you got, you know, the, 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 the other things that transition from the golden to the silver age and what in other places and stuff. Anyway, you had the invasion of Sauron, Right. And the death of Celebrimbor and the destruction of Eregion. And now that time of what looks in retrospect like a time of innocence. Right. When these doors stood open and uh, there was friendship between elves and dwarves begins to feel like an era before this era, this era of darkness and suspicion, this era of shadow. Right. And uh, growing shadow. Right. Um, yeah, and it was, trifle as you say, an era when the elves deemed that evil was ended forever, but it was not so. Yeah, you're right. Um, uh, that's, so it's not the king that's returning here. It is the reopening of that door, right? There's this sense that the company of the ring is that in some way. Like the, the company of the ring in this in this moment, at this place, in this moment, becomes um Elrond designed it, the company, that is, to be a symbol. Right? He was thinking symbolically when he made the that's why he wanted there to be nine of them, right? To symbolically correspond to the nine riders who are evil. Um, so symbolically, they were the opponents of Sauron. Sauron has his minions. They were the minions of good, right? Who are going to go out to, uh, uh, to oppose Sauron's evil. Um, but also Elrond wanted them to be composed of the different free peoples, right? Remember that Gandalf also chooses symbolically um when they take the uh 
when they do the parley at the black gate, right? Um, like it is fitting that all of the free peoples should have representatives there. Um, but, um, yeah. Oh man. Nerdo sapiens minions of good is a really good band name. That would be awesome. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, Trifle, you're exactly right. That's it, I agree. The more you think about it, the more it works, isn't it? Uh, Trifle says it's notable that these doors were shut from a chain of events that start when Sauron betrayed his friendship with Celebrimbor and forged the One. Um, now we have the One right here on a quest to end that evil. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There is. It's not a destiny thing, exactly, but this is the parallel. The parallel with the moment of destiny with the thrush knocking, right? Um, I find that it pushes us to think in these kind of big picture terms, right? Um, it's not the same kind of moment, and it doesn't symbolize the same thing. The Return of the King thing, right? The reestablishment of the Dwarven Kingdom and all that. Um, uh, but it, instead, it's doing something different, right? Um, and what it's doing, what it's pointing to, I think is, I think is important. And I think it's important because, um, this company, which is still traveling in fellowship, it has an important role. It seems beyond merely accompanying the ring. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it does point to the essence of the quest, of the quest, Aspen. And I think we are used to thinking. Uh, we're used to thinking of it in this way. We're used to thinking of the significance of the fellowship. But remember, Fellowship of the Ring is a title put on later on as we see, this group isn't going to be called a fellowship until it breaks in the title of the last chapter of this book. So, it's called the Company of the Ring. Um, this is one of the moments where that further symbolic significance, I think, is made more explicit. Um, we, um, uh, we've had a parallel already, right? I mean, the parallel has been there, but it wasn't strong. It wasn't like it wasn't emphasized very strongly. The parallel, like what, what, what's the parallel to the Fellowship of the Ring? Well, the parallel to the Fellowship of the Ring. When was the last time? that people from different races got together and set out to invade Mordor in order to bring the evil of Sauron to an end. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, that, that's, that happened before, right? The Last Alliance, of course. And Elrond did a whole recollective on that. Uh, in, um, uh, I think it's, it's not an accident uh, that he did a whole spiel on the last alliance in the in the um uh in the council right um 
there is a sense in, you know, this is, it's a different kind of story, right? It's not an army. Um, it's not going to be that sort of invasion. Um, but this is, there is a sense in which this is a, recap, a, a small scale recapitulation, right? And of course, that's always how it works. Like whenever you recapitulate something from an earlier age, it always happens on a very much smaller scale, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes, NJJ, you're right. Even that sort of echoes, uh, uh, has sort of echoes with The Hobbit. Yes. The Last Alliance, you mean? Yes. Battle of Five Armies? Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, yes. Um, and yes, Trifle, exactly. They're finishing the work that The Last Alliance failed completely to do. Yes. Yes. Um, anyhow, so, and there's, there's of course, and why? How? Why is it, and how is it, that this alliance, that this company, um, this company that is here to reopen the doors of friendship and fellowship, right? Um, why is it that this company is going to succeed where the last alliance failed? Because this one has hobbits in it. It's all good and well to bring the elves and the humans together. You might think that by having, you know, the last surviving might of the elves of the first age and, uh, you know, the remnants of the greatest human civilization ever all together fighting on the same side that you're getting it, you have everything that you need to succeed, right? But, but you, um, uh, you don't. You don't have, uh, it's, you were missing, you're missing the Hobbit element, right? Um, you're missing the Hobbit element. And that's, again, perfectly consistent with how this, um, this quest is different, right? Um, they're not just doing it differently this time. That is like a, a stealth invasion, a stealth infiltration instead of an armed invasion. They're not just doing that for pragmatic reasons, like that they lack an army, mostly. Right? An army, you can do it anyway. Um, it's that sm they need the small hands. They perceive the small hands are needed, right? Um, the hobbits, in fact, the hobbit is the key of the whole thing. And when in future days, um, you know, Eorth's cousin will retell the story um, about how the halfling went up Mount Doom and fought Sauron himself, they're not going to be completely wrong in their version of the story. Um, okay. Um so, there we are. Uh, what, a what a strange evening it has ended up being. And I'm so late. Oh, my goodness. I'm like half an hour late now. Okay, it's fine. It's fine. Tonight was a weird night. Tonight was a weird night. I don't know what got into me tonight, but there we were. Um, this was, uh, was a fun class. It was a fun, non-linear, totally out-of-control class. But, um, half a slide... Yeah, tonight's the night not to measure in slides, right? But we're going to make up for it. Next time, next time, we're going to, um, 
we're going to do a slide and a half. I'm just going to, I'm just going to call it. We're going to do a slide and a half next time. That's what's going to happen. Also, I should warn you, um, next time will not be next week because next week I will be, uh, somewhere over the Pacific on my way to Australia. Um, so, uh, Matt, it's not a promise that we're going to do a slide and a half for next time, because uh, that would be a rash vow. Instead, it's just a, um, it's just a, a, a bold prediction, which may, may turn out to be foolhardy. Um, but anyway, yeah, so, um, um, yeah, uh, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be good. But anyway, it won't be next week. I plan to be, uh, to do class the week after. Uh, so that'll be on, uh, what is it, the 31st? Um, 30th. 30th. Yeah. Um, uh, the 30th. We should be okay for the 30th. Assuming I've recovered. Um, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be land, I'll be flying back on the Monday. So, assuming I, I have my sleep cycles even vaguely together, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have class next Tuesday. But, uh, anyway, um, so yes, see you soon, Dizzy. See, see, see my friends there in Australia before we have our next class. Exactly. All right. Uh, we're going to do, we are going to do our field trip though. We'll do a short field trip tonight, but we'll, we'll do a, we'll do a brief, even though I'm like totally out of whack with everything here tonight. Nevertheless, we're still going to, um, uh, we're, we're still going to do, we're still going to do our field trip. All right. But thanks, folks, who are, are to our book only folks. All right. I'm going to do my thing here. One of these days, this will actually work, but uh, it's not going to be this day. Okay. How are you this evening, Druid's Fire? Oh, hanging in there. A little bit chilly where I am. Yep. Not quite as chilly as it is where Valori is because her no. she is out of power this evening. So, um,. Yeah. Uh, she was, uh, physically incapable of joining us this evening, unfortunately. Um, but, um, all right. Excellent. Um, so this evening, the plan had been, we're, we're moving into a Regian tonight, right? I believe so, yeah. I think so. So let's get back to um, uh, where was the last? Didn't we get a new milestone? Uh, we did. Uh, oh yeah, up at the the elf uh, camp up there, right? Yep. Yeah. All right. I'm um, I'm coming in. All right. I'll catch you in just a second. All right. After tonight's class, I vote we name the Western Gate Melanon. Okay, gotcha. I'm with you. I, I see where I see where you're coming from there. All right. Okay, yeah. We oh, hang on. Let me accept that. We are going through not the Prancing Pony. That's where I come back to Ithobel. Exactly, Ithobel. So in Swanfleet, um, as I think we were. Preparing to be done with Swanfleet. I think we were just 
basically finishing up. Uh, we were looking at some intriguing ruins in the distance. We had gotten the time. That is true. Okay, so just looking at the map here, right? We got through. Yeah. Yeah, I think I wanted to go down and look at uh, look at Celebrimbor's home base from this side. From this point of view. So, okay. I am... I had a brainwave. Uh-oh. I totally had a brainwave. This is not one of those, like, I've come up with a, like, a crazy new plan for a new project sort of brainwave that I had. This was... Oh. Uh, don't worry. This was an interpretive brainwave. Wow. Okay. Oh, we're going uphill. I remember where we are now. Okay. Here's where I want to go. I want to go back down. I was remembering... It was when we were uh, having class tonight. We were talking about Sauron's invasion and stuff again. Okay. So here is, we're now seeing, right, there's the library and stuff, like all the stuff up on the hill, right? There's, um, uh, what's it? What are they? Mirabelle. That is Mirabelle, as we have known it, right up on the hill, pretty much straight in front of us there to the southeast. Okay. Um so remember, I think I finally came up with an explanation for a thing that was bothering me. So if we head back, so there's Tom Mirdine, I believe. No, okay, that's Kaos Galebran that I'm seeing. That's the plateau. Okay. All right. Here's the, here's the, here's the path that I'm looking for. All right. So this path went up north to that really nice... Um, you know, vacation spot up on the hill overlooking the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm, right. Here, so remember when we were we were exploring that island of Karas Galebra and we hadn't been able to get up on top of the plateau yet, and we found that, okay, so there's a fork in the road, right? So the left-hand fork there went on to, again, that'll be interesting. We can look at that, too. But we're going to cross the bridge. We're going to cross the bridge. So this bridge departs north. So now what I'm doing here is I'm imagining myself back again. It's it's the Second Age, right? It's 14, the year 1200 of the Second Age or 1300, right? Somewhere in that last couple centuries before Sauron comes and wrecks the joint, right? Okay. So it's like 1300 of the Second Age. And we have this lovely... Not just city, because it's not like built up urban. It's like this spreading party encampment, right? Quiet, peaceful, lots of Noldor living around here, enjoying themselves in the beautiful countryside, right? We've got some living up on that plateau, but even that wasn't like built for defense. And none of this stuff down here, as we saw, was built for defense, right? Uh, We were noticing, it was one of the first things that we were noticing as we came through about how non-defensible that whole city was. And then we found this gate up here. So there's this little wall up here, which would look a little bit more defensible, except the fact that it doesn't have any gates, right? So we came through this gate from that side, because our, our, our old milestone was back over there, right? And I'm looking okay. at the map, 
And I'm like, okay, on the map, look at this. Not only is there a road on the map that extends out straight ahead of where we are, but it's like the main road. The road across the bridge is like a fork off of this road. It's a side street, right? And having just traveled there, we can see very clearly it is a side street. It's a pleasant side street up to a nice little vacation spot in the hills by the River Bruinen, right? Lovely view of the canyon, lovely view of the angle, lovely view of Western Aragian and the Wade Water and everything else, right? Lovely view of Aragian and the mountains. Just a lovely spot, but just, but a small spot, right? Not a, clearly not a, like an important city or anything like that, right? Okay, fine. So here we are. Uh, so that means that this road, what we are now on, emerging from this gate, right? This is the main road. And so when we first came out here, you may remember that I went down this way, being like, okay, well, let's follow that road and see where it goes. And where does it go? Nowhere. Look, I'm still following the road. I'm, I'm, I'm on the map. I'm following the road. Right. And it just goes to this, this is like this blank wall faces the whole entry point. You come around here and then we have an entrance over here blocked up by a fallen tower. Cleverly. Right. But you've got this, this whole curtain wall facing the direction. And this whole place is like, you can't. And we tried to get in and you can't get there from here, right? I went up to the right along the wall and there was no entrance in, right? I think I have a theory. So my brainwave is a theory to explain all this. My theory to explain this is that this was, this wall was built by Celebrimbor when he knew that Sauron was starting to invade, that this is a defense that was constructed because he suspected that someone... So he looked around and he was like, oh man, this over here is... Yeah, this is all indefensible, right? You can't defend this marshland over there. You, this plateau up here is nice, but that's not where Celebrimbor lived. That's not where his forges were, right? He's like, no, I need to... I, I know where Sauron's going to come, right? Sauron's going to come for the ring forges. So we need to defend the ring forges. So what if he built or at least beefed up these walls and these defenses? Um, now, I know that there could be another more boring reason for this, like Lotro doesn't want us to enter that from this direction. But I reject that as an explanation on principle. You reject the reality and substitute your own? Well, no. I, I enter into the secondary... I'm, I'm investing the secondary world with secondary belief, you see. Within the frame of... Exactly. That's looking at the beam, not along the beam. That's precise. Using the C.S. Lewis metaphor. That's exactly it. So, yes. I think that from within the framework of this world, I could take this as potentially archaeological evidence to support the idea that Sauron brought some of his armies around this way, and what's more, that Celebrimbor anticipated that 
and therefore beefed up his defenses from this direction so as to make uh, sure that they, he knew that this place was going to get sacked. And so presumably they, uh, they, abandoned it. they abandoned it when the armies were on the way. Um, exactly. So they extended the Tom Myrdine curtain wall down to the river. Exactly. Exactly what I am speculating here. And that's why not only does the road seem to lead to nowhere, the road also kind of petered out. I mean, we can see it here. It, it, it's regained a little bit here. But it seemed to vanish right away. Like it was fallen into complete disuse. Probably because this very valley as was. Right? If we go up right next to this wall and look down at this valley, this valley was full. Would have been full of Sauron's army. I bet you Sauron occupied the heights up there. That sounds reasonable, yeah. With his army when he came through. Sauron probably had his, like, headquarters up in that, like, keep up there. Betcha he did. Um, yes, it's true, Aronos, that 4,000 years of, uh, of disuse will also help the road to disappear, but... Okay, so we can't ride in this way, right? That is correct. Okay. All because of those clever Celebrimborian defenses. Um, let's go back. We can see the road over there. Can we swim over? We can swim over, oh, yeah? yeah? Okay. So let's swim over or ride over. If No, we're going to... Yes, we're going to make it. Oh, yes. Hobbit, the hobbits might get us melted. That was close, but it's shallow enough. Okay, so over here, this is that uh, turning of the road that we ignored when we were coming down towards the bridge. Okay, and now we're on the Eregian side of the map. We can still see on the new map, you can still see the old the bridge over there that we crossed before. Okay. And so now we're riding in. And I'm I'm wanting to Okay, so seeing what we can see of Tom Mirdine now from over here. Our glimpse of it before was so tantalizing. Can we get in there now? Or still only on the instance? I believe it's still instance at this time. Let's go take a look, though. See if the portal's there. Is there a bridge? Do we have to... Uh... Oh, I see. Sorry. I have my fingers on the wrong buttons, which makes steering harder. Um... Okay, so here's the Saranan bed as it comes down. Where? Yeah, it's not going to let us. We can't climb up that bank over there, right? No, it's, it's sheer for a reason. Yeah. I think if you have to go to the bridge and the bridge will put you into the portal. Well, I'm telling you, this just goes to support my theory, I think. Because if we see this, this would have been easy to defend from the riverside. It would have been very hard to take that from the river. Yeah, because they, they wouldn't have anywhere to put like ladders up to scramble up the, the bank, and you could just you know, shoot from on high, throw things at them. Yeah, and these were, these were Noldor, you know, defending that bank over there. And they were defending something important to them. Exactly. 
And so here's the bridge. Okay. So when Swanfleet was connected up, so that now you could go that way on the map, which we ah, there's the portal. Okay. Yep. All right. So we can't see any more than we used to be able to see, really. They didn't change any of this, did they? Uh, no. They just basically smoothed away south, I'm sorry, north of the incident area. Right, right. Yeah. It's definitely a look but don't touch kind of place. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah. So that's what I think. Well, it's. I wish we could explore Tom Dine a little bit more. The instances, instances are very rarely satisfying from an archaeological standpoint. Sometimes. Well, the Karen Scalabrin one definitely is because you get to see Karen Scalabrin before its fall. Oh well, and that, there's plenty. Yeah, and you can basically not start it. So yeah, you go in, but you don't actually start the thing, and you can just go look around your house and stuff, and then you start it, and then it destroys your bit. Yeah. Oh, hey, let's uh, let's ride across country to Echadaregian, and then we'll uh, we'll milestone from there because it's the time has come to uh, do the quest related places in Eregion that we didn't do before. So this means for folks who want to join us on the field trip, um, you'll be better off having a level 40 to 45 character or higher to keep up. Otherwise, we cannot guarantee your safety. That's it. Yeah, it would be fun to have a non-instance version of Tom Mirtine. But it is really fun to see how they've connected it to the overall geography. Um, and... Um, And also, you can ride to the angle mythical just over land now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's uh, up on the right there. That's the water park, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. So this is the amusement park. Which I think is great. And so, oh. and there's there's nothing new apart from the fact that we could just take a left at any time we want to and head straight back into Swanfleet. There's nothing. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing else yeah. up up there, right? The only thing, yeah, the only thing new for Eregion is the fact that they made a new map for it, and uh, they made it so you can ride across from the angle into uh, Swanfleet. What is that? gazebo on the side of the hill up directly in ahead of me in the distance okay let me see where you are oh that's the uh, that's the ridge runner ridge racer uh it's just a gazebo that if you can get to it oh uh, on, on the holland ridge yeah right i think i did labor my way up there once it takes a little bit of doing yeah yeah There are not very many areas of 
Lotro, where I have spent a great deal of time attempting to farm crafting resources. But this is one of them, actually. So whenever I ride yeah. past a, a, a thing of silver here, I'm always like, ooh, okay. Um, all right. See an indigo plant here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel you. <laughs> ah, here we go. Okay. So let's let's do this milestone. And from here, what the plan will be is we will head out to the Redhorn Pass. So first we'll do Karathras and the trip up Karathras as it is envisioned by Lotro and the Redhorn Pass. And then we'll return back over the Redhorn Pass because Karathras won't be quite so angry at us. And then we will head to the Wolf Hill. And then we will retrace the way up to the walls of Moria. So that'll be our, that'll be our sequence. Excellent. Okay. Um, well, so that was a, a brief field trip today, but it was good to get our bearings and uh, uh, sort of see how things connected uh, connected up there. And then next time we will uh, we will look at how the not only the locations but also the story um, that we have is of course anywhere in the in Middle Earth where a significant moment in the plot happens is always really interesting to see how they handle that in Lotro. Um, and the kind the the because there's there's not only direct like plot and story adaptation that they do, like character and story adaptation that they do, but the way they incorporate that adaptation into uh, setting and location is also a lot of fun. So, um, anyway, but thanks everybody. Thanks for um, uh, uh, thanks for joining us today on this uh, strange, late, and um, uh, and and uh, peculiar field trip at the end of a long and peculiar day and um, I will see you guys again in a fortnight when I return home from Australia. So thanks everybody and have a good night. See you in a couple weeks.